Well, hello, everybody. It's good to see you today, wherever you are. Happy Fourth of July weekend. If you are watching this on a beach somewhere, I am jealous of you, but congratulations. That's great. If you're waiting for fireworks somewhere, man, we're so glad you gave us some time. If you're in one of our rooms, man, thank you for uh, just spending some of your valuable holiday weekend with us as we as we come to worship together. And we never want to uh, take that for granted. And that's one of the things we celebrate this weekend is the incredible freedoms that we have to be able to do that. So happy fourth from us here at Chase Oaks Church. And today we are starting a brand new sermon series called Closer. Now, when I first heard the name of this series, it kind of brought around a sort of mixed reaction, kind of post pandemic reaction, partly because and this will date me just a little bit. The first image that came to mind was from Seinfeld. I don't know if you guys remember that there was a time when Elaine was dating the uh, the close talker. In fact, I think we have a picture of the close talker up there. There he is. Okay, yeah. Don't do that. That's kind of like a creepy sort of close that you don't, you know, don't do that. That's just bad uh, to do it that way because there's a part where there's a new kind of barrier and he he had a two steps too close kind of reaction to people when he would meet them. So that's creepy close. Stay away from that. That's not what we're talking about this series. What we are talking about is about relationships. Uh, and the power that friendships and meaningful connections have in our life. I think all of us would say that's a good kind of close, uh, a kind of close that we do want more of in our life. And I, and I get that we're different. Uh, some of us in this room or that are watching are extroverts, and so we want lots and lots and lots of connections that are popping up all the time. Uh, there are others of us that are more introverted. That would include uh, me as well, where we maybe don't want lots and lots and lots all the time, but we do want a few uh, different people as well that we can connect with. But I think all of us would say that having close relationships, having close friendships of people who have our back, uh, who know us and, and we know them, uh, who would be in our corner when we need them to show up, I, I think we would all say that that kind of connection, that kind of close, is a good kind of close that we would like to have. But the, the challenge is finding those kind of connections. Friendships, and the statistics back this up, friendships are struggling. They're struggling big time. Uh, in fact, here are a few stats that I pulled. You can find a lot more of this than this. But like back in 2013, there was a, uh, a social research organization called Lifeboat. And they issued a state of friendship report. And back then they, they found that 75 percent of Americans were unhappy or dissatisfied with their current friendships. And that most uh, Americans only had one real friend as opposed to all the different connections that they might have on social media platforms, that there was really only one, if that, real friend that they had in their life. That was back in 2013. Uh, in 2019, Evite found, uh, that's the, you know, the invitation uh, organization there, they found that the average American hasn't made a new friend in the last five years. And, and this one was the most fascinating to me. It was the one from Cigna. Uh, you know, a health company, Cigna back in 2019, uh, found that three out of five United States adults uh, would say that they're lonely. And the interesting part is that statistic actually grows the more, uh, it grows higher the younger that you are. And so if you're a millennial, 70% of millennials would say that they're lonely. Gen Zers, that's the one before uh, the younger ones, those are our high school and college students, uh, they would say that it's 80% of them would say that they are lonely most of the time. 
Now, all of those statistics, and those are staggering uh, statistics to think about, but all of those statistics were, were true pre-COVID, you know, before we had a whole bunch of these. And this is why I have this up on stage. This is a, a closed door. In fact, uh, we had a lot of people that said, are you going to have like Monsters, Inc., like is, are, are Sully and Mike about to pop out from under here? This is a completely closed door. You can't open this up like that, so don't worry. That would be a cool trick if someone did pop out at some point, but you don't have to worry about that. Um, but the reason why I have a closed door up here is that I feel like in the last year, so much of our experience has felt like this. You know, closed gyms, closed coffee shops, closed offices, closed schools, closed normal connection opportunities that used to be there were no longer there for, for most of us. As a side note, and this is, has nothing to do with my sermon, I just had to mention this. In the, the Torrance household, we had a frustrating closed door, a very real closed door in our own life in the last week when we were out in the yard and our 20-month-old uh, daughter, Nora, walked in uh, to our house, uh, slammed the door shut, and deadbolted the door. And then she started waving at us, and it was like, well, that's a frustrating closed door. Everybody's okay. We got it figured out. Uh, but it was kind of a metaphor, it felt like, for the entire year that I think we were all dealing with. Um, all that to say that finding uh, meaningful connections, meaningful relationships is challenging. Uh, there is a lot that is working against you and I experiencing that kind of depth in our friendships. That's the bad news. The good news and what this series is about is that there actually is a lot that is in our control. There's a lot that we can actually do about that. And as we're at a period of time where we're starting to reemerge from the pandemic as calendars are starting to refill, as routines are starting back up and it's almost like we're all in this period of time where we're starting to maybe organize our life and, and put priorities up. There's an opportunity that we have at this moment of time to kind of analyze how are we doing in our relational fitness, in our relational area of life. Knowing that most of what we were doing before the pandemic wasn't working. And that going back to that normal won't get us to where we want to go, to the extraordinary kind of community that Jesus envisioned for you and I to be able to experience uh, together. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at what God has to say about what life-giving community looks like. And, and the great news is he has a lot to say about it because he designed us, he created us as relational beings. Um, and we're going to look particularly at the New Testament because the New Testament gives us an incredible blueprint of what community can look like and how we can find it uh, in our lives. Uh, but to get us started for this weekend, we're going to look at a core component that kind of unites this whole series together. It's kind of a, a key part of that blueprint that if we're missing it, uh, the whole thing falls apart. So we don't want to miss this core component that we're talking about uh, today. And to help us understand this component, we're going to listen to one of the most influential leaders of all time, the Apostle Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament. He was an accomplished leader, uh, somebody that went out and did all sorts of things. But he's also somebody that pours out his heart and soul in this letter that we're going to be looking at tonight. And that's found in Second Timothy. And so if you have your Bible or if you have your phone and a phone app, you can turn to Second Timothy or you can follow along with me on the screens. But what we're going to see in this letter is a very vulnerable Paul, a very raw and personal Paul. 
And it makes sense when you kind of understand the situation that he finds himself in. Um, to catch you up on his story a little bit, uh, in the book of Acts, we meet uh, Paul as he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And, and Jesus changes his life. And so then he goes on these incredible missionary journeys uh, to go and share about the love and grace and truth that comes in Jesus Christ. But as he goes on these bold missionary journeys, he runs into incredible resistance as well. And so at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 28, we find that Paul is, under, uh, is in Roman custody. Uh, he's under house arrest. Now, house arrest isn't great, but it also had some levels of freedom in it. He actually, we, you can read it in Acts 28, where he has like visitors that come by and see him. Um, he also had kind of a hopeful outlook at the end of the book of Acts, where he kind of expected uh, that at some point he would get out and that he would continue on in his ministry. And most biblical historians think that he was released and that he went on and did some more ministry and did some more church planting and developing uh, different churches. But in 2 Timothy, when we get into this letter, uh, we find a drastically different situation that Paul finds himself in. He's arrested, uh, and he is in Roman custody again, but this time it's not house arrest. It's prison. Uh, And this time, instead of having some freedoms or visitors that are coming by, uh, there is pretty much no one that's able to get there. He's alone. He's isolated. Uh, to further complicate it, the situation in the culture is pretty, is pretty bad. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, ancient history, uh, Nero was the Roman emperor at the time, uh, and Nero was persecuting Christians left and right. And so most historians in ancient church tradition tells us that, uh, that Paul was a part of that persecution, and most people believe that he was executed uh, under Nero's regime in A.D. 68. And the reason why I give you all of this is in the book of 2 Timothy, in this letter, uh, most of us believe that this is the last letter that Paul would ever write. And in this letter, he expects that he is going to die soon. And so as we read this letter, it's almost like his farewell discourse to, uh, to the world as he's reflecting on his life and in a, a much different state of mind. And you can hear it in just how personal he is in here. So join me, 2 Timothy 1, and this is just in verse 1, where he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dearly loved son. Timothy wasn't his actual son, but uh, it was, you could see how close of a relationship this was because there was a, a father-son kind of mentor-mentee uh, sort of relationship here that was very deep. And so he says this to Timothy, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, essentially Paul is saying, hey, the last time you and I were together, this was emotional for Timothy as well, that Timothy had the same level of connection with Paul. So he says, remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you 
through the laying on of my hands. Basically, this was a call back to saying, hey, Timothy, I was there when you were ordained, when you were uh, basically called into ministry. And we all said, hey, we see this in you. And so remembering that moment, man, don't let that power you forward in these dark days. And, And then he says this, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love and sound judgment. Uh, What Paul is doing here in this moment, and I love it, it's the vulnerability that comes with real people. I mean, the Bible is written by real people. God inspired them, but but they're real people in real history uh, who are in real situations. And so Paul is giving us a window into his soul, uh, particularly into his soul at a key part of his life where, uh, you know, he's reflecting on everything. And what we see coming to his mind at this key moment are people. Uh, in the letter of Second Timothy, Paul will actually wind up mentioning 23 different people, 12 of whom are never referenced anywhere else in Scripture. And so it's clear that, like just in Paul's head, there are different meaningful connections that are just popping into his mind at this moment, uh, including, like, in our sense, random people, but not to Paul, like people like Timothy's mother and grandmother that he mentions. But he makes a special moment to, to reference Timothy. Because he's saying, hey, with Timothy, um, I want you to move forward. I'm, I'm handing you the baton of, of leadership that after I'm gone, man, you're carrying this thing forward. In fact, uh, the power that these words must have had on Timothy um, must have been immense. I mean, if you can think in your own mind or your own story of, of maybe a mentor, somebody that you respected, maybe it was a, a teacher or it was a parent or a coach or, uh, or somebody, a, a boss that, that spoke into you at a key moment that, that maybe just kind of helped inflate your sails and pushed you forward, you know the power of that. And Paul actually in this passage gives us a pretty, uh, a pretty good model to think through where he kind of balances out both a little bit of, of uh, affirmation of like, man, this is who you are. Um, you're my dear son. God has poured his spirit into you. This is who, uh, in that, hey, the, the gift that, uh, or the faith that your relatives have, I see this in you, kind of an I see in you sort of conversation. But then he balances it with some exhortation and some encouragement. Um, As we can kind of infer from this passage, it seems that Timothy uh, struggled with timidity and and being bold. And so Paul's like, man, just be bold and step forward. And and he really pours into it. That that is the power that comes with real relationships that, that we all need. And so that's what Paul's doing here. But as he's in this process of encouraging Timothy, um, we then see uh, him kind of give us a hint of just how hard things are right now for him. And this is what he'll say in verse 13. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard that good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You know that all those in the province of Asia, and this is where he gives us a window into his soul. You know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Uh, it's interesting in this in this part that that Paul lets us in and, and Paul's lonely. Uh, he's at a stage of his life and, and, and you can kind of hear it sort of hyperbole where he's like, man, this whole region has like deserted me like they've all turned their back on me. But but then he actually gets pretty personal and he mentions two people that will probably live in infamy a little bit. It's like hey, they're, they're never referenced in the Bible again. And how would you have liked that? The, the two, you know, the one time you show up in the Bible, it's deserting Paul. It's like you're not going to live that down for a long time. So Phygelus and Hermogenes, we don't know anything else about them, but we do know that 
hey, to Paul, there was a personal kind of moment where he felt like key people who had been in his life had turned back. What fascinates me, what encourages me about Paul being vulnerable here is that it's a reminder that strong people still get lonely. No one can argue that Paul wasn't a strong person. I mean, the guy, I mean, if you read Acts, I mean, he gets bitten by snakes. He gets arrested. He gets like, you know, practically thrown out of town and stoned. He, he wrote books and he was a theologian, a church planner. He did these bold missionary journeys. No one can argue that he wasn't strong and he got lonely. And I need to hear that. In fact, I, I want to word this a few different ways for you to, to see if it clicks for, for all of us to say that. Strong business people still get lonely. Strong executives, strong teachers, strong nurses, strong doctors still get lonely. Strong men get lonely. Strong women get lonely. Strong kids, strong students, strong moms, strong dads, you get the idea, still get lonely. And the reason why I'm camping out on that for just a moment is that there is something in us, something in our culture that just does not like to admit that. And the reason why I know that is because of just how strongly we go and what to what lengths we go to communicate the exact opposite of that fact of almost like admitting that you're lonely is some kind of big taboo that would be really hard to get out there. Um, I call it one of the, the dangers of the, the social media cycle that we often fall into. Sometimes you can hear people call it doom scrolling. Have you heard that term before? It's almost like you're in a bad spot uh, in your life and you, you log into social media knowing that you're probably not going to like what you see. It's probably just going to, but you still kind of keep swiping it up. And so for me as like a parent, it, it, this time of year where we have young kids, like to be able to go and do cool vacations is really hard. And yet I log into social media all the time and get a little jealous of all the cool vacations that people are going on. I think this happens all the time where we log into certain things and we see all sorts of connections that people have out there where people have good friends, it seems like, or they're doing great things or uh, or they feel like they man, everyone else has this friendship thing figured out. But me and then we kind of carry on the cycle by posting something ourselves that makes it seem like, man, actually things are, are also man, we are killing it right now. Look at all the friends that we're hanging out with when man, deep inside we'd say. Yeah, you know, that's fine that I'm posting this. There's nothing necessarily wrong about that, but I'm lonely. And that's hard to admit. Admitting that you're lonely doesn't make you weak. Uh, Paul was a strong person, and he knew that he needed other people. Uh, that's what strong people do. They know that they're relational, that they're designed to be that way, and that it's okay to admit it. And he had no problem admitting it to a trusted friend uh, named Timothy. But he also knew what would solve that problem, or at least the remedy for that problem as well. And this is where we read this in 2 Timothy, uh, verse 16, where he says, May the Lord grant mercy. This is right after he talked about Phygelus and Hermogenes. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome... He diligently searched for me and found me. What Paul knew that when he had a loneliness problem, what he knew is that he was refreshed by people. That he needed a friend. And 
he knew something that I'm going to say here that's going to sound super obvious. You're going to be like, man, I don't even know. Like, that's not even worth saying. And yet, it's something that we have to say because it's not as obvious as it would sound. And that is that we can't fix a loneliness problem alone. Can't fix a loneliness problem alone. But so often we try. Uh, the way that this often works out, at least it has in my life, is that when we're feeling that loneliness, uh, whatever feeling that brings up for you, if you're saying, man, I'm just kind of feeling isolated, that that's when we start a new diet program or a new fitness program. Um, or maybe that's a time where we start pouring ourselves into our work a little bit more than we normally would. Or maybe that's when, and I think this could happen over the, especially the last year, where we start to get a little bit more into our sports team or into cable news or into uh, politics or civil service. And again, those aren't necessarily bad things, but, but if we're expecting those things to solve a loneliness problem, we're probably going to be disappointed. Or, or maybe that's the time where we start to kind of work on our social media brand or we start even a, a small business of some kind because we've got this loneliness problem and we're trying to do something with it and, and think that that will help. Or, 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 or maybe it's, man, we start to have that glass of wine a little bit earlier and earlier in the day or, or maybe the second glass of wine a little bit more frequently than we normally would, hoping that that would fix the loneliness problem. And, and again, some of the things that I mentioned are healthy. Some of the things that I mentioned are, are not good, but, but none of those things will solve a loneliness problem. But we often try to do it that way. And what Paul knew that he needed more than anything was a friend, was a person. That would be the thing that refreshed him. And it wasn't just any person. It was a guy named Anesiphorus. I can't even pronounce that tonight. Anesiphorus. It was a guy that knew that Paul was facing his own closed door, a prison cell, deep in a prison in the heart of Rome. And it was a person that said, you know what? I'm going to show up, not only just show up to Rome, but in the words of the scripture, he's like, he diligently searched for me. He's like, he's like, I'm going to go up to multiple doors and I'm going to knock down that door and I'm going to find another door because I've got to get to Paul. That was the kind of friend that Paul needed in that moment to refresh him. He needed an anesophorus. And that's the interesting thing that happens when we have closed doors and challenging situations and uncomfortable, awkward or hard moments in our life that feel like they are shutting us in is that oftentimes the most the more closed the door is in our life, the more clearly that we could see someone else's connection and devotion when they show up. It's like we wouldn't go back and relive that moment in our life. But we'll never forget that person that was able to show up in that moment. I've shared this story before here. But a few years ago, at this time of year, Amy and I were pregnant with Amy. Well, Amy was pregnant. <laughs> That's always the thing that husbands get in trouble with, where it's like we, we own that pregnancy. And my wife would be like, no, you weren't pregnant <laughs> on there, too. My wife was pregnant with our third child. And each of Amy's pregnancies have been hard. They've been really, really hard. Uh, she gets sick for uh, a good chunk of the pregnancy, uh, motion sickness and just all sorts of things for, for more than half of it. But every time when we heard the heartbeat, there was a, uh, there was a sense of, of purpose, a sense of joy, a sense of, okay, we, 
we've got this uh, to help us move forward. And so after we'd had our two boys and we've been through those pregnancy journeys and we, we were on this third pregnancy journey uh, and we had heard the heartbeat, we were like, okay, we're gearing up for another long but joyful uh, journey uh, uh, with this with this baby. And so even at that point, we went and bought uh, new beds for the boys because um, they were going to start sharing a room. Uh, we went and husbands, many husbands in this room can attest, we went and bought a minivan, which was a hard, <laughs> that was a hard, that was a hard sell for me. But it was like, okay, I think we're going to actually need a little bit more space in there because, uh, because of, of what was coming. But everything changed when we went in for a routine appointment and the heartbeat wasn't there anymore. And we confirmed that we had lost our baby. And in the middle of that devastation, and it's still, it's still devastating till this day, in the middle of that devastation, part of the challenge that I ran into was I didn't know how to tell anybody. Uh, maybe when you've been in your own tragic situation in your own life, you're like, I, I don't have the energy to be strong for other people. I'm barely holding it together right now. I don't, I don't really know if I can... I don't want to tell people. I don't want to have to deal with trying all, all that back and forth. And so all I could muster up, and it probably wasn't even the best way to do it, but I could just, I just sent a text to a few key people just saying, man, this is what, this is what happened. This is probably not the way that I wanted to tell you. I mean, no one wants to hear that news, but, um, this is what happened. Just be praying for us. We don't need anything, that kind of thing. A couple hours later, after we got that text, we got a knock at our door. Um, and I was like, this is a salesman. They are, in for the wrong timing uh, for that. But it was our longtime nanny, Cindy. Uh, many of you know Cindy. Uh, she is a Chase Oaker. She has loved on lots of kids in our church, including, uh, including mine. And she told me, with, as I opened the door, she told me with tears in her eyes, she said, um, she said I, I just, when I got your text, I, I just got in the car and I drove, I just found myself and I drove, I drove here. And I, I want to take the kids from you guys and watch them for, uh, uh, we had our two young boys, I want to watch them for the, the rest of the day so that you and Amy can, can have some space. And I'll never forget that. Um, and she wasn't the only one. Uh, my, my mom flew uh, in later uh, the next day uh, to be with us. We had members of our small group. But Cindy and, and those other people were Anesophoruses in our life. And they refreshed us. And if you've had somebody in your life that has done that at a key moment, you know how powerful that that is for you as well. But I also know um, for anybody that's watching, for anybody in this room, that, the, that there's an equal side, a pushback on that to say, well, that, that's great for you that you had a, a Cindy, that, that you had an Anesophorus. But there was a moment in my life when I needed an Anesophorus to show up. I needed a Cindy and I don't have one of them. Or, man, there's, there's a moment that's going on in my life right now that I, I desperately need someone to diligently search for me out. And they're not. And I understand the pain of that. Uh, that's part of the trickiness of the situation that we find ourselves in as a culture right now. Um, the trickiness being that I think many of us find ourselves behind our own set of closed doors. Uh, we're hurting, maybe feeling isolated and lonely. If you take the statistic that's over half of the doors in your neighborhood have people that feel like their door is closed and that there isn't an anesophorus showing up in their own life. And the interesting opportunity that we all have 
is that we actually have the opportunity to be proactive and to do something about that. Uh, you and I don't necessarily have the control to say that someone will actually show up in our life when we need it. We can hope for that um, and we can want that, but that's not necessarily in our control. But what is in our control is actually being an anesophorus for somebody else in their life. And the Apostle Paul talked about this uh, in a different part in, uh, in the New Testament. Um, in fact, at, at this part where he's reflecting on how uh, he saw significant devotion from somebody who showed up at his door in his life, in Romans 12, uh, verse 10, uh, Paul talks about it more as a command, uh, more as a proactive thing to people who are in the new community of faith at the time of, of, of Jesus followers, this new thing called church. And he says it in this way. He says, be devoted as a command, be devoted to one another in love. Devotion being show uncommon bond, show uh, uncommon unity and devotion and connection to each other in love. The, the word for love there is Philadelphia, which is brotherly love. So it's like as a, as a family, as a family bonds together that, that are not often broken, so is the love that you are to have for each other. Um, throughout the New Testament, there are over a hundred one another uh, uh, statements like this, where uh, the writers would talk about how, you know, do this uh, love in this way at, for one another as a way to reflect the love of Jesus. And it actually is all based off of the new command that Jesus gave uh, right before he went to the cross, where he says, love one another as I have loved you, you are to love one another. In a sense, as Jesus uh, pursued us as Jesus came to our uncomfortable closed door where, man, there wasn't uh, a lot of hope and connection and, and our ability to make it to God on our own. It's like that. That was a closed door. And Jesus diligently searched for you and he searched for me. And, and, and what Paul is saying, as Jesus had that kind of energy and affection and proactivity, so are you to show that same amount of proactivity to one another. That is the critical component. The proactivity, the intentionality, the desire to say that when it comes to our relationships, while we don't have the, always the, in our control to, uh, of what other people do, each of us has the ability to show friendship, uh, to create friendship momentum in the circles of people uh, that are in our life. Worded another way is I would say that Paul is saying that for you and I, we are to have knock-on-door devotion. That we are to show up in an uncommon way for different people in our circles, in our life. That there are people that are depending on each of us that are watching to be in a nest of forest for them. What could that look like? I, I think that could show up in a couple of ways. Um, in some ways, it could mean knocking on a door for the first time. And when I say door, it's metaphorical. It's like that could be a Zoom link. <laughs> it could be, uh, could be showing up at a coffee shop. It could be going to a, neighbor, uh, to a neighbor's house for the first time. It could be trying a group at Chase Oaks uh, for the first time as well. Um, as a kind of groups person uh, here at the church, uh, there's a, a phrase that I like to use. I call it the doorbell test that we all face when it comes to a new connection opportunity. And, and what I mean by that is this, is that when you have an opportunity to connect, there's that moment where you drive up to the door and you're wondering what's on the other side of it. And a lot of times you're like, as soon as I hit that doorbell and they open it up, I'm kind of stuck for a little bit. If they're crazy, I'm stuck for at least... 15, 20 minutes. If they're not, then okay, that's great. But it's a test that sometimes can be hard to ring. 
Uh, and as an introverted person, I've driven by several door opportunities, several neighbor opportunities, several small group opportunities. And sometimes it hasn't gone all that great. But for all of the life-changing connections in my life, they all required some element of relational courage. The ability for each of us to say, I'm going to take the initiative and step out in order to connect with that person who just as desperately needs me to show up in their life. So sometimes it could mean knocking on the door for the first time. It could also mean knocking on a door again. Um, uh, during the last year uh, of COVID, I think were opportunities for all of us to get a little lax. Uh, you know, we've talked about the COVID-15. Have you heard about the COVID-15 as far as the weight gain kind of thing? It's like, hey, there's, you know, this is a chance for all of us. Like, man, I kind of got out of the habit when it came to some of my workout routines. And so I felt a little bit of the COVID-15. I'm kind of like the worst kind of skinny guy where I'm skinny on the arms. But, you know, now I'm starting to show it a little bit there. Uh, that's a reflection of COVID uh, when it comes to our physical health. And some of those physical aspects are a little bit more obvious to us. But when it comes to our relational fitness, when it comes to the friends in our life where we're like, hey, they're there, but, you know, like they're there. That knocking on the door, that diligent searching kind of attitude, that's a good question to ask ourselves when it comes to the friends and the current connections that we have in our life. It's why I was really encouraged by so many of our small groups here that decided to still meet on Zoom, even though it was not the ideal way to meet in the last year, because that was a way of showing knock-on-door devotion. That, hey, this isn't ideal, this isn't comfortable, but I'm not going to let you slip away, because you are that important to me. And I'm going to click on that link, and I'm going to look at that camera on the computer, and I'm going to sit there, and it's not my preference, because you are that important. I think all of us have to think through, how is our relational friendship fitness doing? And is there a place that we need to up that diligence and that searching out uh, for each of us? You know, as we are in this series, one of my big prayers is that this would be a chance for us to really assess and to then think, how can I own the friendship culture in my community? And what doors are there in my life that could drastically change because I showed up at it? And is there a neighbor? Is there a friend? Is there a coworker? Is there somebody who desperately needs an Anessa Forest and that each of us have the ability to be that in their life? And so I hope each of these weeks will show up thinking through what that looks like intentionally. And I'm grateful for this chance that we got to think about what it looks like to be proactive today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this chance to come to you. And I know for many who are watching, many that are in the rooms at all of our campuses, um, many of us are lonely. And not just in a, you know, oh, yeah, I've got some friends. Kind of. Some of us are desperate. And Father, I know how hard that is. And after a year where so many connection opportunities were torn away, I, I pray, Father, in this moment that you would meet them with your present and love and grace in a profound way, that they would feel connected to you. And Father, as a community, as a community of faith, that as we reflect the love of Jesus that he showed in our lives, that you would help all of us have relational courage to be like Onesiphorus and to diligently search out for those people in our lives and to show up even when it's not comfortable. 
We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.